Welcome to Media Path. I'm Fritz Coleman. And I am Louise Palenker. On every episode, we point you in the direction of content that may, if we succeed, make your life a little bit better. And today we've got a great example of that. We have two very skilled filmmakers. Both express a kind of heroism, but in different ways. We're going to talk to producer, director Tracy Droz Trago, who has done a film called Plan C, which takes us inside the battle being waged by a cohort of very brave women, making it possible for women around the country to get abortion drugs. RU486, Mephipristone, and Misoprostol. It's a fascinating film. These are known as medical abortion pills. Now, this is being recorded at the beginning of a week that is extremely important in the women's health care rights. We've got elections all over the country. We're going to talk more about that. And in just a minute, we're going to meet uh, meet Charles Mudede, a Zimbabwean filmmaker who's made a film called Thin Skin about a very talented musician of Nigerian descent who endures a divorce and sketchy day jobs, trying to make it as uh, a working musician up in the Seattle area. And uh, we're going to have a great conversation with Charles. But first, Weezy, what do you have for us? So, Fritz, I'm going to be talking about a film called The Insurrectionist Next Door. Last year, Alexandra Pelosi made a film called Pelosi in the House, in which she documents her mother Nancy's groundbreaking career, up to and including Nancy Pelosi's heroic efforts to hold ground as insurrectionists violently stormed the Capitol in an attempt to overthrow our government. This year, Alexandra is peacefully talking with convicted insurrectionists and genuinely asking them, why were you trying to kill my mom? She is looking to better understand their motives and through conversation, help us all grapple with the cultural and political chasm that is so polarizing our country. There's certainly much to discuss after viewing this brave and brilliant doc, but what I see is hurt and wounded people grasping for any measure of strength and empowerment. One of the rioters says, in passing, I must have pissed off my dad because he beat the shit out of me. Another says, yes, I have daddy issues. So my theory is that MAGA enthusiasts see in Trump a father who approves of them. When you are a little kid with an abusive dad, you are looking for love from a powerful idiot. Trump is familiar to them. It is what they know and what feels like home. And now, at long last, they storm the Capitol for him. They earn his praise and pride. He tells them he loves them. Trump is quenching a deep thirst. How do we prevent weak people from falling in love with wannabe strongmen? I don't tend to think we can change them or recommend enough therapy. Folks like them have always been there, on the fringes. The digital age amplifies and unifies their rage. And I also don't think that naming them and shaming them all over the internet is part of the solution. They are loud, but outnumbered. There are more of us who seek leadership guided by character and competence. We need to lift up and celebrate the good work being done by well-intentioned public servants to improve the lives of everyone. True strength comes not from what you can tear apart, but from what you build. It comes not from guns and muscles, but from wisdom and empathy. Let's listen better. No one learns when they're being scolded. The folks in this film know they are talking to the daughter of Nancy Pelosi. She wants to hear them. Up to a point. To one guy, she eventually pleads, please stop talking. I don't want to hate you. (laughs) (laughs) The insurrection is next door is on Max. I just love her. The thing she did with her mom, she benefited from some spectacular timing being there on January 6th. But also, another one for those of us that live in California, 
she did a spectacular, I think it was only 40 minutes long, this documentary about why it got expensive to live in San Francisco, mm-hmm. uh, uh, San Francisco 2.0 or something, where now it's three times as expensive to live there thanks to Silicon Valley people. So even service people, people that do normal blue-collar jobs can't afford to live there, and it was fantastic. She's so good. Yeah, she's really good. I love it. Oh, I'm going to look at that. I didn't get a chance to see it. Yeah, it's Well, I, I, I'm going to talk about, you know, me, I, I love the Nova and the PBS stuff and and the David Attenborough nature documentaries. That whole genre of films just took a giant leap forward with a new series on Netflix called Life on Our Planet. This is life's extraordinary journey to conquer, adapt, and survive across billions of years. As the saying goes, life always survives, and you will watch that happen in this series with the most stunning visuals and easy-to-understand narration by Morgan Freeman. It's produced by Steven Spielberg. The visuals are created by Industrial Light and Magic. It's a combination of actual nature footage and then imaginatively conceived artists' perceptions of what the earliest creatures to inhabit the Earth look like, and it's all guided for authenticity by a Yale paleontologist. It starts with single cells moving through the primordial ooze and then moving through dinosaurs and ultimately through human civilization. It goes through the five mass extinctions in the history of the world. It concludes with its most profound concept, and that is the only species capable of causing its own extinction is, <clears throat> is the human being. I got choked up we talking. Are gi- we are gifted Lord, across all uh, We are, really. Yeah. It's elegant in its visual beauty and its simplicity. Morgan Freeman narrates, but his voiceovers are spare and easy to understand. The mind-blowing 3D CGI does most of the communicating. This will be a great family viewing opportunity, compelling teaching tool. Life on Our Planet is eight episodes, and it's on Netflix. I just loved it. Wow. It was really cool. It's what, so pretty. What a piece of work. It really is amazing. All right, let's meet our first guest. Coming to us from the great Northwest, Charles Mudede. Charles is a Zimbabwe-born cultural critic, urbanist, writer, and filmmaker. He collaborated on two films that premiered at Sundance, Police Beat and Zoo. Police Beat is part of the Museum of Modern Art's permanent collection, and Zoo was presented at the director's fortnight at the Cannes Film Festival. His most recent work is Thin Skin. This is a film about the life of musician Ahamefule Aluo. I probably booted that right out the window. Ahamef- no, you sounded good. Dang. Strong effort. He's of Nigerian extraction. He's a skilled jazz trumpeter who has to endure divorce and mind-numbing day jobs to fight to be a successful professional musician up in the Seattle area. This is a familiar story in any of the areas of show business here in Southern California, where people exhaust themselves as waiters during the day so they can get their unpaid equity waiver theater job at night. This is a true story, and it's beautiful. Charles, it's so nice to have you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Is it raining up there? Uh, Of course it is. That's what I thought. Okay. He's wearing a (laughs) raincoat. So, yeah, this is a film about Amafelu, Amafelu, Amav. Just call him Aham. Aham is how just they pronounce it. In the, I know, but I thought I, I practiced at home at night. I my cat listened to me, and, and <laughs> describe who this this man is. Uh, yeah, he's a he's a musician, as you said. He's very you, you put you, you nailed it. Um, you know, a lot of people don't know that in that you know we always think of Africans as being sort of like. Um, sort of free, loving, dancing, 
loving, right? Mm-hmm. Being expressive and all that stuff. But actually, Africans are very conservative, right? Mm-hmm. And what we the the, the 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 catastrophe in an African family is to hear that you're. Um, is to hear or to learn that you, that someone in your family is going to become an artist. Right? I know and that that so, conversation that the two kids have with their father over the phone kind of proves that. Yeah, and that's what I wanted to show is this other side of African culture that a lot of people may not appreciate, and it's not the usual representation of of, of African culture. Um, so, yes, it's coming from this sort of conservative side. And I've always been interested in the conservative side of African culture, mm. which goes all the way back to my to the first film I worked on with Robinson DeVore, Police Beat. The police officer is actually pretty conservative as well. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I just always wanted I always think that uh, I just wanted to show that I'm not a, I'm not a conservative. I'm pretty much on the left. No, no, I'm on the far left. And, um, in fact, I'm a, well, I'm a, I'm a, a socialist. Yes, yeah, so so yeah. we've read, so we've read from your Wikipedia. You've read, you've uh, read, yes, so yeah. you know my politics. Yeah, but um, but I'm, I'm I I believe that art should be dynamic mm-hmm. and and dialogical, and so um, there are I I, re- I was raised around these kinds of conservative views about how society should be run, about what marriage is, and all these sort of things. And um, what what's expected of you, right? Uh, um, as a um, uh, you know, as a career to go to college, to become a doctor, a lawyer, something like that, but not a jazz trumpeter. Well, what, <laughs> yeah. you know, what's interesting is that it's it's really you know, it's got a lot of themes, but at its heart, it's a story of a, of a boy needing his dad's approval, and in and yes. not receiving that. Eve falls apart, and in your film, quite physically. So, talk talk a little bit more about where, how you learned about the story and how you became associated with it. Well, you know, you know, um, I, you know, what happened was I, I you know, Aham um, had a, uh, a, a a theater show, which involved um, stand up comedy and uh, and uh, and music pieces called "Now I'm Fine." And he explored uh, these themes in that, and I watched it like back in 2012, and um, and I and I was impressed the fact that uh, he had that there, that he was from he was coming from a Nigerian background, and that, that there were similar themes uh, in my own right background, which is based in Zimbabwe, and so I said, ah, oh, we could make this into a film, and I was looking for something, and I'd been working on a number of film projects. The, the weirdest and most horrible thing I want to tell everybody who makes a film is I've made more money from film projects that weren't made than from film <laughs> projects that were. Oh, <laughs> we need a support crew for filmmakers. It's like the theme of the producers. You're Max Bialystok. Good for you. <laughs> yeah, no, and I, I want to go back to making no more films, but but making mo- the money. Uh, but it, that's, that's a joke, by the way. No, that's, I, I that's get it. like no. the intention of making a film is very. <laughs> just a warning. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So this is this one is um this was uh I was sitting around looking for something that I could actually make, and that was that could, that I could sort of get uh, funded, and I watched that show and I loved the theme and it resonated with me and my own background. Um, it was real difficult for me to tell my parents. And this was not even, you know, that I was going to be, I was going to study uh, English literature. Wow. Wow. Yeah. 
This film said a lot of things to me. It's the daily struggle of an artist trying to make it. It's a discussion of mixed yeah. marriage. It's an immigrant story. And I yes. thought the most interesting topic yes. that was broached in this film was his mother is white and his father from whom he is separated is a black Nigerian. And the children, Aham and his yes. sister, had to remind their mother that even though she is their biological mother, she really doesn't know what it's like to be black. And I thought, wow, that was a really interesting topic to talk about. I mean, to, to, to have that connection, but that disconnection with your own mother is not easy for either of them or the mother. Absolutely. And, you know, um, I, again, the, uh, I think we always think of, uh, uh, we, we take a simple view of, 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 of racial dynamics in the United States, right? We really do. It's, it's much more complicated. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, you know, you have to at once um, and love, and I, I'm, a, I'm also, I've, you know, I've raised mixed race kids and it's not an easy thing to do. You have all these, um, um, uh, uh, you know, they, they see themselves, you know, in America, you're, if you're if you're if you're mixed, you're black, right? Yeah. So it's uh, but if you're right, it's just sort of a strange dynamic. When when I, I was raised in 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 Southern Africa, um, a lot of people don't know this, but um, we did they if you're mixed, they actually don't call you black or white; they call you colored, mm-hmm. right? So somebody like Trevor Horn, no, mm-hmm. no, Trevor. Who's the guy? Trevor Noah. Trevor Noah. Trevor Noah. Trevor Noah. The Daily. Sorry, yeah, the South mm-hmm. African. Yeah, Tre- Trevor Noah is seen as black in the USA, but he knows if he went back to South Africa, he'd be seen as colored. Mm-hmm. It's not a kind thing to say, but that's what they—that's what they say. They don't—they don't give him the status of black at all, and so the, so you end up being in this kind of crazy situation, and so I—I I, we have to fight through these these these. These, these these obstacles, you know, um, and to find who we are, you know, um, against um, um, various sort of cultural um, um, uh, uh, readings of, of race. They're not they're not as simple. And it's, and I think why I'm sort of really interested in in, in immigrants is is uh, is because <clears throat> they are thrown into this complexity, and uh, and they, they have to figure out like how do I find myself. Uh, in these um, uh, identities that are often inconsistent, right? I mean, right now, if you look in the in, in the state of Washington, they actually started to add mixed race as a as a legitimate right hmm. as a legitimate category okay. in the um, uh, in the in 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 the census. Hmm. And I think this is you know what I mean. It's something like well, you know, we we still have to like say like. We, we we we're still using these definitions that might be just totally old right right and it's difficult because um yeah yeah that it's all of that stuff goes into the yeah show. and I, I i try to work through these problems uh with with uh in in art 
Mm. Particularly, well, I thought and, it was uh, such a. It was, and, a and I'm hoping that a lot of people who watch it. Yeah, I yeah. thought it was a beautiful treatment of the topic because I love the lady that played the mother. She's such a beautiful, interesting kind of, sort of a quirky. Oh, character. she's amazing, and that, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and second of all, you know, we're, we're, just like you described, we're in a, especially in this country, where mixed race couples are being more and more represented every day. You see them in commercials and television shows, and we're getting to accept that. But yeah. underneath the surface, we don't understand understand the the extra stresses on the children and the parents in trying to make that type of a relationship work just not not with the rest of the world but between themselves between the parents and the kids and the kids and the parents yeah and you know i'm an important thing is i'm not a i'm not a i'm I'm, I'm opposed to the term i want to just make this clear i'm opposed to the term colored which they use Mm -hmm. in southern africa Mm -hmm. and i'm opposed also to the idea of just saying that someone who's not white is black and i'm not i'm not i'm not I'm not entirely support that i want everybody to accept the complexity of, of race right mm-hmm. i want everybody to sort of see it as which is which is why the film was really about family mm-hmm. and how family deals with these larger social constructions right with mm-hmm. all of their problems and i didn't want to you know you don't want to have somebody um um um, be a hero or to have all the answers, mm-hmm. right? Because mm-hmm. it's not that easy. You want to just see people working through these problems. And maybe when people watch them doing so, they 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 see the problems and therefore can start thinking about them. And you also use a lot of humor throughout and his boss at work. Yo, <laughs> by the way, it's a funny film. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, it's great. I've got to remind everybody, it's not a tragedy, it's a comedy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> His his boss at work is very enthusiastic about people of color uh, thriving, you know, in her yeah, place of work. Yeah. And so you kind of parody that. She's an interesting character. She's like a cross between a mid-level corporate manager and a TV evangelist. She goes back and forth, you know, between her religious yeah. stuff and then, you know, making sure he has a future. It was interesting. And yet his heart isn't there at all. If she, if she knew anything about him, she's about her own agenda. She's not about like really reading the room. His, you know, his heart is he's a, mu- he's a performer. He's a musician. And how did you incorporate the music into the film? Because I, it's it's so. Oh, beautiful. that was that was. Yeah, go ahead. So beautifully done. Really, no, beautiful. that was Aham. Aham really is a great musician, and uh, you know, it was that was the easiest part of making this film. Was that the group you know, that he normally plays a, with? That whole group that was with uh, him was very no, skilled. No, actually, there were some members, some players he works with. He's he's um, he's a part of the jazz community in Seattle, and so they all know each other and they all go back and forth, right? You know, and mm-hmm. they all form small bands and then they join or participate in large bands and so on and so on. But he wrote the music. He's a great composer. Calls himself a jazz uh, punk artist, or he invented this sort of subgenre called jazz punk or something. It's so interesting to listen to. It's a lot of different types of music. Yeah, he did. Tell us where, because you're going to have a little theatrical release. Just give us the details on where folks can find the film and when it's going to be streaming and and et cetera. Oh, wow! You know, uh, the you know, I have a really big problem. We have a we have a screening in in Los Angeles on on November sixteenth, um, at uh, and I and I gotta admit I I'm so scared 
of figuring out how to pronounce that theater. The yeah. Lamely Theater. <laughs> Lemley. The Lamely Theater. So I know you say Lemley with an E. Is it Lemley? Lemley. Yeah, that's the it's one. Yeah. And then in Seattle, we're doing the Arcs Lodge. At this, we, we have a four. We have a run for about five, uh, from the 16th to the 19th. Oh no, no, uh, from the 16th to the 19th. Yeah, at the Arc Lodge here in Seattle, and then we have another screening in. Um, uh, in uh, in New York at Eflux uh, on November 30th, and then it it, uh, it goes and then it, it's uh, it's available. It'll be available on DVD and also um, it'll be stream uh, available on streaming at the same time. I, I mean, I, I, all I can just say is it's an independent film. A lot of heart was put into it. Um, we went through several challenges, such as the pandemic. Wow! Yeah. <laughs> what was it? What was the pandemic we had to, about? We had to Just edit it. We had to edit it during the pandemic. Oh my which gosh! Was wow. Stressful. So well, it's just we're just it's, happy just to have it. Yeah? It's it, great. It's gorgeous to look at. Just yeah, gorgeous. and gorgeous to listen to. The music is spectacular. Well produced, and it's great. And beautiful performances. Well, thank so. you for, so much. This is this is encouraging. I really am. I am. I'm really happy. And those are. I'm glad you brought up all those questions. But yeah, that that you got to the meat of the matter, and and uh, so yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, we but you'll went, love, uh, I think everybody will love the fact that it's a family film. Yeah, it is. And uh, there's a lot of love put into it. Yeah. Well, Charles, congratulations. We, we wish you great success. I want to ask you one final question. Was police beat about yes. South African policemen or American policemen? Oh, no, no. It's a, it's a, it's a policeman in Seattle. Oh, but he's, but he's African. Who happens to be from Senegal. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I was interested in, um, I, I, we, in Seattle, we have bike cops. And they were they were a very big deal, and so I, I I came up with the idea of making a film about a, an African in Seattle who is a bike cop. That that was very funny because in Africa bike cops are of a very low order, but in, in Seattle they were completely fashionable. <laughs> oh my <laughs> no, god! I thought it was very funny. Yeah, it's I hilly. It's, I and, laugh about that in the back. Huh? No, it's hilly, and you've got great legs. You know, <laughs> you got to work those you got hills. Great legs. Yeah. He, he was an athlete. He was gorgeous, perfect. Yeah, yeah. Please, if you get a chance to watch that. And I'm infamous for making Zoo, which Zoo. went to Cannes Film. Awesome. Yeah. So, well, it was an honor to talk to you, my friend. We wish you luck on this nice piece of work. You're a delight. Thank you so much for joining okay, us. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Charles. Okay, Bye-bye. Sir. Bye-bye. All right, now let's meet our next guest, Tracy Droz Trago. I'm a big fan of this lady's work. She's a producer and a director and a writer. Her earlier work, Rich Hill, was the story of the lives of three young people steeped in poverty in a small rural town. And what makes it even more fascinating to me is I find out before the show that she actually lived in that area, as did her family. And it was just a great piece of work, saw it on independent lens. Her work on the topic of abortion started with an HBO documentary called Abortion Stories Women Tell. Talks to women on both sides of the abortion issue. Her recent film is Plan C. Now, this is a story of a nonprofit organization that finds ways to deliver abortion drugs to women. This is extremely dangerous as an undertaking. There are states in this country where even sharing information about abortion with somebody is illegal. And as I mentioned before, this podcast is being recorded on Tuesday, November 7th, Election Day, in several states where abortion is a huge issue. A huge issue. We have Ohio, where it's a ballot measure. We have Kentucky, where they're trying to keep an incumbent liberal governor, which will keep abortion out of their state government. And Virginia, where the, and this is the scariest one, I think, yeah, where Glenn Youngkin is going to try to establish, if he gets, uh, if he can flip both houses in the Virginia state house, 
he's going to make it a 15-week abortion ban. So this, all this stuff is very controversial right now. And we're very happy to welcome Tracy Droz Trago. Tracy, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Talk about what Plan C is. Well, Plan C um, is a network, so it's not just one organization. It's a constellation of many organizations around the United States, and these are people who are uh, expanding access to and information about abortion medication, how to order it online, how to have it delivered discreetly, privately, uh, in the mail to your house. And what I found fascinating, these are not young ladies, the two prime ladies in here. And people that operate on that side of the abortion issue are threatened with their lives every day. And I thought these women are in their 60s, maybe 70, and they're doing this like it's nothing. And I love that she describes it as an act of civil disobedience. Yeah, I mean, these folks, um, the people behind the organization Plan C were part of uh, the team that got emergency contraception over the counter. So they've been doing this work for years, um, care very deeply about access, know that abortion medication is um, legal in 90 countries around the world, has been FDA approved for 23 years, and yet still folks largely don't know about it. And then, of course, you know, in the course of my filming, Roe fell. And so, you know, things got very, very, very complicated. What timing? That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the double standard between Viagra medication and abortion medication, <laughs> to me, epitomizes the insecure caveman attitude of certain men. I have the right to create people. If I put a baby <laughs> in you, it better stay there. It's a control issue, it feels like to me. Um, tell me how you feel about, about this insistence that they care about life when that's not what it's about, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, there's so much hypocrisy, so, so much, yeah. and double standards. I mean, yes, the fact that you can have Viagra delivered, you know, to your door through telemedicine, sure. But, you know, for a long, long time, you couldn't have abortion medication, which is safer than Viagra and safer than Tylenol, but for many, many years was, you know, regulated like an opioid. But it took COVID to kind of release those restrictions and for people to understand, yeah, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm walking into a clinic, I'm risking getting COVID, um, but I'm still taking, you know, picking up this medication and going home to take it. So what is the the sense of that? Like, why shouldn't I be able to actually, um, you know, have it delivered like people have Viagra delivered? But yeah, you know, I mean, ultimately, it's not about caring for children. I mean, we have a crazy infant mortality um, and maternal mortality rates in this country. We have people are living in healthcare deserts. Um, you know, I'm, uh, we don't support, you know, people who want wanted pregnancies so you know there's a lot of just kind of double speak and and not really um you know it's so <laughs> there's also a lot of you depict in your film there's a lot of a lot of white nationalism in this in that um the history of you know right to lifers they uh ha shows them encouraging and enabling abortions in black and brown communities but not allowing white women to get an abortion. This is sort of like a population control sort of issue that you touch upon in your film. 
I mean, that's a whole other layer of it that um, Loretta Ross, who is one of the Love women. Love her. Yeah, she's a MacArthur genius. She's an amazing person. I could yeah. make a whole film about her. Um, but yes, her words of wisdom, her understanding, her you know decades of, of work. Um, I, I was so glad to have her be a part of it and just kind of also set... Um, you know, she spoke a lot about within the reproductive rights community that there is a lot of side punching that happens sometimes. Yeah. Um, and the fact that, you know, especially right now when rights are under, you know, such threat that we ought to just keep it focused on, you know, keep it focused on the fascists. And if we don't side punch and criticize each other, you know, maybe we can get somewhere. Yeah, I'm going to quote her directly while we're talking about her. She says, a lot of people think that deeply criticizing everybody else is the way you do social justice activism. She calls it poor threat assessment. (laughs) She's just brilliant in in the film. You just want to hang on every word. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about the two drugs that are involved in this treatment. You have mifepristone. Is that RU486 or are they both RU486? They're not both RU486. And this is hard. I mean, this is, you know, it gets so confusing, but I hope, you know, it's 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 not that confusing ultimately. But it's mifepristone, which is RU486, and that is only used in um, abortions and miscarriage management. So it blocks the progesterone, mm-hmm. the pregnancy hormone. So you take that. And then 24 hours later, you take um, misoprostol, which is used in other things like arthritis and veterinary medicine. So that's not the drug that's so, so highly regulated. That's what I didn't understand, because mifepristone, the way it's described in your movie, is really a drug that prevents the development of the egg. Uh, the, what I'm saying is, so is it really abortion? That's not really abortion. What that is is birth control. It's not. I mean, it's it's it's. Mm. You know what, you see well, what I'm saying? Well, I mean, you're already pregnant when yeah. you're taking this, yeah. presumably. So oh, no, it blocks true. the pregnancy hormone. Mm-hmm. So it stops the pregnancy from progressing. Right. But you know, there's a lot of conversation, and this gets a little in the weeds. But because the folks behind Plan C were also involved in emergency contraception, there was some idea when emergency contraception was being developed that they should include mifepristone just in case the egg you know a fertilized egg mm-hmm. did implant in the uterine wall um, but they couldn't do that because then it would be deemed you know uh, abortion medication wow. so they took it out so of course it's only you know the 72 hours and it can't for emergency contraception mm-hmm. but Abortion medication used in this regimen of two drugs is, you know, it's like 99% effective and it's super safe. And so, you know, ideally, folks ought to have access to it. Mm -hmm. Um, And and it's about a bunch of... Go ahead. I was just going to say, this is just... I'm just going to make a point about being female on planet Earth. There's so much pressure on young women that if you are in love with a guy, he needs sexual activity and the drive is so powerful and you love him and and young people are the worst at contraception because they are beginners so and now the young woman you know faces the the added pressure that abortion is not legal where she lives so i kind of call this a peace of mind vote where which maybe didn't happen so immediately um since the vietnam war where you know your vote was like literally a, a life or death 
you know, what was on your mind all day, every day. I, you know, I picture young women going to the bathroom and checking to see if they got their period. And, like, and you know, this is on their mind constantly. And it's affecting the joy of falling in love and starting a family and, and everything else that's supposed to be so pleasurable of, you know, when you become intimate with someone that you're in love with is, is now impacted by these laws or by people who think they know more than you do about where where life begins when none of us know. I mean, not that we shouldn't always take the beginning of life and the end of life extremely seriously. We should. What could be more important? Uh, so it's so complicated and you and you handle it just so deftly and so sensitively and so lovingly in your film. It's it's really opens up the conversation. Well, thank you for that. And there's a great book I might recommend, The Turnaway Study, about um, that Diana Foster Green, I believe, um, is the author of that. But about what happens when folks are not able, as you say, to access the care that they need, um, you know. And there are lots of reasons for them. Uh, uh, it's, it's geography. It's the laws of a particular state. It's um, it's personal privacy. Some women uh, want to just go take the pills out of the clinic and go home and do this process on their own. But in some states, you can only buy the drugs if you go to the clinic. You can't get the mail to you, right? Well, so a lot has happened um, in the past uh, few months, um, particularly since the fall of Roe. So what has happened is there are six states in the United States that have passed shield laws. And those states allow providers, nurse practitioners or doctors within those states who have medical licenses to practice telemedicine by shipping to patients in all 50 states. And these states will not support, you know, will not uh, cooperate with subpoenas or extradition. Um, I mean, it gets very, very complicated, you know, what's legal and what's not legal. But, um, but these six states are providing telemedicine, uh, shipping abortion medication to all 50 states right now. Is Texas still the worst offender of all of the things? Oh, I don't know if it's, a, I mean, it's pretty I mean, bad. Where you can it's be, pretty bad. Yeah, <laughs> where, where you can uh, turn in a neighbor and you, you can just suggest to somebody where they can find abortion medication and that's violating a law too? Yeah, I mean, the vigilante laws, and, and they're pretty bad with the uh, gender-affirming care, which these SHIELD laws also protect. So if providers want to support uh, you know, patients who are needing gender-affirming care, um, these SHIELD laws protect them as well. So, I mean, it's a very strange time where we have, you know, are we a loose federation of nation states? You know, yeah. how is this possible <laughs> yeah. that what is legal, you know, on one side of a border is a felony on the other side of the border? Um, but we must navigate this. One of the conundrums uh, that, that ladies dealt with uh, in this, in your film, was that if, 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 the drug is illegal in one state in order for you to procure it to a, from a neighboring state where it is legal you have to drive across the border pull over to the side of the road and make the order as long as it's within that state it's within the law i think it seems so stupid to me yeah i mean you know that that is is absurd ultimately right i mean we can all see that the you know the the provision of medical I mean it's it's the same right it's just where you are and and who's trying to criminalize who um so I, I I mean I think the folks in the in plan C um that I spent you know almost four years following 
their effort is really to let folks know that you actually, at this point, don't have to travel. You know, you don't have to get childcare. You don't have to take time off work. You can do this on your own time by, you know, ordering through aid access and all, you know, U.S.-based providers will ship this medication to you. And so what you talked about before, the states that have recently loosened up and allowed doctors to do it by telemedicine, Mm -hmm. um, are they allowed to do it interstate? Yes, yes. And it's not like loose. I mean, these are these have um, Nancy Skinner in California saw Plan C at Sundance. And so she worked super, super hard since January 2023 um, until now. And it will officially be law um, starting January 2024. But Gavin Newsom have signed it. But it was, a you know, it's it's quite a thing to pass a law through the state, you know, legislature and then get Governor Newsom to sign it. And so it was a lot, a lot of work. Um, and there are six states that have done it so far. And we're hoping that other states will also follow suit. If your social media posts are being removed, how will access to the film be handled in red states? Uh, yeah, what good, a great question. Good, good question. I have to say that our, you know we have tried valiantly to even let folks know you know yeah you can come to this theater or come to this. I mean you know we're about to have our uh, digital release on the fourteenth, so you know we're trying to shout about it from the mountaintops. But um, but yes, our posts often get taken down if we use the word abortion Um, and we've had to have uh, political disclaimers just to say go see a movie so it's um yeah is that just (laughs) is is that because it's like instagram's trying to avoid controversy or is it states that are putting this kind of pressure on them I mean, you know, I, I don't know where it stems from. I mean, I think because it you use the word abortion and people complain about it, and if enough people complain about it, often there are antis that are, you know, there at the ready, and so, oh, they've got to respond to the complaints and, you know, ultimately try to get it put back up. But, yeah, we, we've had to basically say that we're, you know, a political film a political organization and i'm not you know i'm not a politician i'm just a filmmaker making a documentary about a bunch of people who have you felt any pressure from uh the opposing viewpoint since you've been involved in this project i have not and that's kind of the when i made um abortion stories women tell for hbo i was embedded in a clinic and so i witnessed firsthand what it felt like for folks trying to access care Um, and, you know, jump through a lot of these state laws. And then the final insult to injury is like passing a gauntlet of protesters who tell you that you're going to hell. So um, with this method of of, um, receiving care, it's all very private and discreet. And there's no, Mm -hmm. like, protesters. I mean, the protesters are online. The protesters are spreading information there or misinformation. Um, But it hasn't. You know, I, I didn't, with my camera going into people's homes, experience anything. Mm-hmm. Well, one of my one of the more interesting scenes, the women in your in your film are they're quite remarkable and they're quite compelling. Each of them, one of my favorite scenes, if there can be a favorite scene in a movie about such a, such a uh, fraught topic, is when they go to a high school and they get they, they, realizing that. A lot of young girls 
do not have access to this information. They go, well, you you describe what happens. They go in. Well, this is, I think this was a community college. Is this the stickering scene? Yes, is that what is. you're talking about? Okay, so yes, this was a community college. Okay. Although it should happen in high schools, and that's a whole <laughs> other story. Um, but yeah, no, part of the effort is to just get the word out there however they can. And, and so they started a, a stickering campaign with a barcode that said, you know, need to be unpregnant, because that was also part of it. Like, okay, let's not use the word abortion, because mm. that'll maybe freak people out too much. But um, but yeah, there's a whole stickering campaign and putting the stickers in bathrooms and putting it nicely, not crooked, but you know, so yeah, that it looks official. Yeah, I love that scene too, because <laughs> not that you know, there's anything weird about having a cameraman follow you into a community college, which was kind of interesting, but she was brave. I mean, that woman's in her 60s. She's sneaking around, sticking stuff on the wall. Well, there was actually a funny story is that during that filming, um, if everybody for you know there's we're all in the bathroom following her and forgot to lock the door and Uh-oh. so one of the people working in the kitchen like opened it up and like saw Derek with the camera and Francine with her hat and sunglasses and stickers and was like oh and just like turned back around didn't say anything but <laughs> nothing to see here yeah. go back to your exactly. homes exactly I'm not sure what's happening but, I don't uh, want to but know. <laughs> so where does the Supreme Court stand on medical abortions? Well, on this, so there's a Judge Kaczmarek, again, out of Texas. um, Oh, this guy, yeah. And he wants to, he does not think that the approval process for Mifepristone, the first drug in the regimen, was... um, was stringent enough. And it was pretty, pretty, I mean, there was a lot of political stuff so that they, the approval process was arduous and long. So even before it was approved, it was... Um, went through the ringer, um, and then in 2000, it was approved 23 years ago. Um, but Kaczmarek, who does not have a medical degree, um, thinks that not enough was done. So he, it's now going to presumably go up to the Supreme Court. But there are some folks that think that despite the fact that this judge and you know the effort is very uh, anti-abortion, that the Supreme Court will be interested in protecting Big Pharma because the backlash would be oh, so huge. I mean, it's not about protect. You know, it's not about the absurdity of this case and that mm-hmm. this, you know, drug that is. They want to keep people from buying it from other countries and having it shipped in, like they're doing with eighty-five percent of the rest of pharmaceuticals. They're going to be struggling with which which person who owns me has sway here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's pretty. Pretty distressing. Uh, two of the heroes of the film are the men uh, with oh, the women. And these are the guys we love. And just so you know, gentlemen, these are the guys we fall in love with. And these are the guys we want to be with. Just describe the men, you know, in your film. Well, I mean, they're, these are supportive uh, partners. These are partners who are making sure that, um, you know, the people involved in doing this work, which sometimes is late at night and into the night and all night long, especially after uh, the leak happened, um, there were a lot of lot of desperate calls um, to this network. But partners are, you know, keeping keeping the folks doing this work fed and keeping the dogs fed and you know making cookies and also you know making sure that they're hydrated. Um, so you know, supportive. Um, and you know. very much 
men and feeling manly <laughs> and like men, like good men. So well, I love the story of the man who said, when I die, I would like to have on my tombstone, Mr. So-and-so, or was married to, you know, deferring to his wife as being the great hero of the family. I thought that was very touching. Well, Francine is a bit of a um, firebrand, you know, and you oh, need folks yeah. like her, mm-hmm. but a gentle one. Yeah. Well, gentle sometimes. Okay. I mean, she's a disruptor. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I, she's one of the most inspiring people that I've ever met um, in making this, you know, as an independent film, as your first guest was talking about, you know, it's, it's hard, hard, hard work. And there are good days and bad days. And there were certainly times where I was like, ah, I don't know that I can finish this film. But Francine was like the, <laughs> you know, buck up, like if, well, if Francine's going to keep doing what she's doing, despite, you know, against all odds, um, I'm going to finish this film. So, yeah, and she's an incredible person. You know, what was interesting, um, there were so many people who could have had their lives threatened, not only Francine and the uh, Elisa, Elise, mm-hmm. the other lady. Yeah. But the doctors that were doing this below the line and could have lost their licenses and blown up their careers that were doing it, too. Well, potentially, although um, many of them were trying to do things within the, you know, follow the letter mm-hmm. of the law so mm-hmm. that they wouldn't have their medical licenses revoked. And and that's reality right now is that everyone doing this work um, in these shield states, you know, are, are doing so legally within their states. So mm-hmm. it's it's. Um, but yes, people took risks in this kind of gray area during COVID um, when a lot of clinics were, you know, shut their doors and that was a desperate, crazy free for all time. Um, but doctors were, you know, doing what they could to meet the need. And and yes, I think, you know, there was certainly a lot of risk. Um, Where are the drugs manufactured? You know, there, there's two companies. There's um, Danko and Gen Biopro, and they're both American companies. But where they're actually, you know, I think most of our drugs are manufactured in China and India. So um, I don't actually know mm-hmm. where they are made. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're two American companies. And, you know, they're, they're also, you know, in the midst of trying to figure out, you know, what they're, will they be able to keep their doors open if this case that goes to the Supreme Court um, happens, and so there's a lawsuit um, that they've also filed. Um, and again, maybe you know, maybe the courts will want to protect you know interstate commerce more than they'll want to protect you know sort of human rights and people getting the care that they need. But you know, there's it's going to take all the angles. So, um, but yeah, there's two American companies that are that manufacture yeah the, these, these medicines, these strings that pull at policy you know, around us that we're, we're all at, at the mercy of. It's, it's, it is really, well, all you can do is activism. As a real person who's not in politics, all, all you can do is activism, right? Well, I mean, this is, you know, pregnancy is, is a timely issue. And especially if, you know, you're in the midst of an unplanned pregnancy or, you know, God forbid you've been raped or, you know, what whatever the circumstances are. Um, it's it's timely. And, you know, one person I interviewed in Texas after SB8 said, you know, I voted for Obama. I voted for Biden. I am pregnant and I don't want to be. And I cannot, you know, voting Mm -hmm. is not going to fix this Mm -hmm. right now. Mm -hmm. Um, And what is fixing it is is activists who are making sure that folks 
get the care that they need on the ground. And it's often local activists. It's often, you know, folks that, um, you know, one person tells another person um, because the information has been largely censored. Mm -hmm. So it's tricky. And a lot of the mainstream big organizations also don't want to share much information around this because they're scared too. Well, you don't mention this too much in your film, but I know that when a young girl, let's say there's a 17-year-old who is pregnant, doesn't want to be, if she, when she Googles, you know, when the first thing she's going to try to do is go into her room, close the door and go on the internet, she's going to be led to a lot of religious websites that are hijacking those search terms. You know, what what do you know about that and what... What's yeah, I mean, these crisis pregnancy centers that used to, you know, have, uh, you know, brick and mortars across from abortion clinics now are on the Internet. And so now the sort of, yeah, the it's it's Google searches and how to make sure that, um, uh, you know, these searches also result in some accurate information and some places that are sharing, you know, real uh, resources, right? But you know, a lot of it is money. Um, a lot of it is like who's paying for the Google ads and and who has the money. It's, it comes down to funding. So it's um, and it's tricky because she goes in and they tell her, oh, you know, we can't we can't really do this test until next week. And so tick tick tick, exactly. they're playing the, the you know the Trump legal game. Of, <laughs> and, you know, and no one there is has any medical training, by the way. Right, but they're running out the clock yeah. on this kid. And uh, is wow. there an age uh, limit? For instance, if it's a young girl, does she have to get parental permission to take these drugs? It depends the state. So in Texas, of course, you know, but there's also organizations like Jane's Due Process um, that will um, support minors and seeking judicial bypasses around that law. When I uh, met Loretta Ross and I, I said, you know, who, who are the most vulnerable? Like, who do we need to be thinking? Because it's always like center the most vulnerable folks um, with whatever, you know, with whatever activism you may be doing. And um, she said children and often children who are, you know, victims of incest. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, that's, you know, so you talk about parental whatever um, permission, um, you know, there are folks who are in these circumstances. And so, you know, they need to have options. They need to know that there are safe places that they can go. Um, so. so what's the chain of command? Uh, what, what I mean is, how is somebody made aware of Plan C and what happens before that? Are, are they rec is Plan C recommended to them or what, what, who connects to who? I mean, I think it starts as, you know, with a Google search often. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, there are folks who will recommend, but in Texas, for example, you can't. And so when we um, screened Plan C at South by Southwest, there were a bunch of folks that had just been laid off from a Planned Parenthood there. There was one person who was still working. And she said, you know, I, I can't I can't refer people. I can't share any information. I have all this, you know, but I'm not allowed to. And um, one of my producers said, well, could you recommend a film? And she really? said, well, yes, I could recommend oh, a film. That's great. And so, you know, there's a bit of this like workaround to mm -hmm. get the information out there. Mm -hmm. And the film is one way to kind of share the story that there's there are these trustworthy folks. Um, but, you know, how people get this information, you know, I, 
sometimes it'll they'll be referred to it. Sometimes they'll find it on their own. Um, I know there are groups on Reddit that are, you know, but it's it's very much grassroots person to person. I know Plan C tried to do, it did some ads in the subway and have done billboards, but it's, you know, the billboard companies won't accept it, so they have to do the mobile billboards. Oh, wow. Speaking of mobile, I think one of the touching parts was the mobile access to Plan C, where people drive into neighborhoods oh. and, you know, they and, and they, they pull into a parking lot. And how do they do that safely? And how do people get the word that that's where the well, this be. is, you know, again, this is, you know, someone on an internet search who finds, um, you know, who finds out this resource. That organization with the mobile clinic is called Just the Pill. And they are, you know, following the letter of the law, but still having to be protect, you know, still having to take precautions because there is so much violence. Um from antis, and so they don't put any signage on the van, and they drive to different parking lots, and they schedule an appointment, you know, with the person to come pick it up after they've had sort of the informed consent, uh, 24 hours earlier. I mean, it's a it was a logistical feat um, mm-hmm. that they continue to do, you know, to try to reach people in rural communities. Um, but I think the thing for me, the saddest part was the sort of folks that would pick up the pills, so, so grateful, but then run back to their cars as if they were, you know. Like it was a heroin buy Exactly, as if they were doing something that was, you know, shameful and illegal and, you know, really, really bad. Yeah, I know, I know that that's, that's the sense that they get, but I actually think it's, it's more fear-based. I don't want anyone to stop me. This yeah. is what I've decided to do. I know what's best for me, and I want to make it from the, this van back to my car without somebody tackling me to the ground. And, well, well, I mean, so many of the people who shared their stories in the film um, did so because they wanted other folks to know about it. Mm. You know, they did so because, yes, they wanted this option and this option was such a game changer for them and their lives um and and yet they had struggled to find it and felt like you know why didn't i know about this sooner why you know why don't i know about this mm-hmm. and um, most people most of the people who are seeking this drug already have a family want kids and you know you in your film talk about some of the folks who who speak in your film they they have a reason why they can't have a second kid or a third kid right now, and it's usually financial. So, so talk about that. Well, and, and there was a woman who um, who was distraught, who I spoke with, who had had such a struggle with the one child that she had during the pregnancy. Um, the doctors didn't. She was a black woman, and I can't remember the state, but in a red state, um, and talked about how her pain was dismissed, how she was sent home with Gatorade. Unfortunately, she had a preterm birth and her son had to be in the NICU. And she just didn't want to go through that again for herself, but also for her son. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, if the circumstances had been different, maybe she would have, you know, but because it was such an awful experience, 
interacting with the you know hospital system and she almost lost her son and for three months you know she had to sit by that NICU and 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 miss work and everything else there's Um, also a lot of cases where in an effort to preserve this pregnancy somebody's uterus is being destroyed so that they're they're not able to ever have children when they do want them well there's a yeah group of of women who are suing the state of Texas for their pregnancy outcomes and for exactly that. They were they were wanted pregnancies but were um, unable to get the care that they needed when um, the pregnancies were not viable and now, you know, some of them are infertile and some of them, you know, almost died. Um, you know, I, I actually had two miscarriages before I had my two kids and with one of those miscarriages, I took you know, it's it's used for miscarriage management. Right. And, you know, had I not had that option, I don't know if I would have been able to have had the two kids that I have today. So wow. it's like if you don't give, you know, and allow people to do things. And, and I was advanced maternal age. I was like, you know, 35 at the time. So there was like, you know, I needed to, if I was going to have children, I needed to have them. Mm-hmm. But this is what family planning is. It's right. care. Are, are you of the mind that Dobbs and the overturning of Roe Wade is what many call the beginning of the slippery slope when more of our personal freedoms are going to be taken away, gay marriage? And this is just if, if this sticks and we get a Republican president or it's even if it's states rights and all the states flip and decide it's going to be illegal. That's just the start of the descent into hell for lack of personal freedoms. Yes. <laughs> yes, I think it is. Um, you know, and in more just like giving a peek behind my curtain you know one of my kids is trans and if i was in texas you know we would be would be child abuse um you know the care that we're giving him now so it's um yeah and i I never never imagined that i would live you know in a country that would be so um intrusive it feels very much like Mm. a police state depending on where you live yeah good word your film is absolutely gorgeous for those of you that are about to watch it it's it's about a, a topic that's very solemn but it's so beautifully filmed it just immerses you in every setting and i absolutely love the feel and the pace you want to be a part of the story you want to know these women you want to just sit down get a cup of coffee and just just talk about the things You've done some great social justice work in (laughs) your life. You did Rich Hill, which is a heartbreaking, but as such an intuitive look at poverty in the United States. And you've done this. And so you're you're doing, as they say, the Lord's work. Ah, thank you. Thank you very, very much. (laughs) Do you have anything in mind to continue either this topic or others? Well, I am um, doing a follow-up to Rich Hill right now. It's I've been following a young woman named Sarah um, who became a mother at 15 and now has three kids um, and is 25. And I've just, you know, uh, chronicled her journey, her life these past 10 years, um, the opportunities she's had, the obstacles she's faced. She did drop out of high school. She never wanted to do that, but she couldn't have childcare. She couldn't find childcare. And what made this resonate with you was you're from that area. I am. I am. I mean, and your family's still there. And how far from the environment where you found these three children did you live? Um, Quite 
close. Richill is a tiny, tiny town of like 1,400 people. And so, you know, with my grandmother being a school teacher and my grandfather being a mail carrier, we kind of knew everybody. So, yeah, it was a very, very tight knit community. Um, but there was always the, the sort of homes on the side of town with the tarp on the roof mm-hmm. that looked a little, you know, um, and for me, it was important to also um, tell that story, um, you know, the story of those families. All right. Well, tell us where we can find Plan C. You can find Plan C um, on the Internet. We're going to be streaming on November 14th. So very happy after a good festival run at Sundance and South by Southwest and lots of other places that we're now. What was the reception? Were you happy with the reception? I was thrilled with the reception. I mean, the the. Um, the sort of critical acclaim is what you know what you might call it, but the reception in terms of you know sort of traditional streamers and picking it up that was that was hard. But it's a very very hard time to be a documentary filmmaker if you're not making a film about a celebrity. To be honest, wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, we I could always thought there should be a docu- something about Prince Harry at the very end, if that would. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's always this suggestion of like, well, get a celebrity EP, and then uh, they could, you know, and okay. then they could, uh, you know. That's so but, sad. Yeah, but unfortunately, you know, even just, I mean, we really actually pursued the celebrity EP route, but. Um, you know, celebrities have brands, and those brands can't, you know, can't, um, it's one thing to be pro-choice, but it's another thing to be an EP about a documentary about a network of, you know, people expanding yeah. access to abortion medication. Mm-hmm. You have Too a scary where, <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know if this happened, in, you know, in your, in your festival tour, but you have a film that would invite folks to come up to you and tell you something very personal after watching your film, did that happen? That happened, yes, that happened. And I mean, I think the thing that people have taken away from this, um, and I'm so grateful, is that they're taking away hope. There's taking away, they realize that there is actually something that they can do. There is an option they didn't know about, and there's something that they can do. Mm-hmm. And I think particularly in the banned states like Texas and Utah, where um, we've had a lot of festival play. The people who came up to me there um, w- were pretty powerful. Oh, so wow, yeah. Nice piece of work, Miss yeah, Tracy Droz Trago. All right, thank, thank you. you. It was here, really here. interesting to have you on today. Thank really, you so much. Really, really, really wonderful work. Here are your me. closing credits. Thank you so much for joining us. We would love to continue this conversation with you on Instagram and Twitter, where we are at Media Path Pod. And on Facebook, where our show page is Media Path Podcast, and our Facebook group is Media Path with Fritz and Wheezy Podcast Community. You can find full video podcast episodes loaded with bonus visual content on our YouTube channel, Media Path Podcast. And you can write to us at mediapathpodcast at gmail.com. If you enjoy this show, please give us a nice rating in Apple Podcasts, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and talk about us if you would be so kind on social media. You can sign up for our spicy little newsletter at mediapathpodcast.com. We want to thank our guests, Tracy Dros-Tragos and Charles Mudede. Our team includes producer Dina Friedman, John Maddox, Bill Filipiak, Thomas Hubble, Mason Brown, Lori DeWall, Garrett Arch, Chris Baldwin, Jordan Reyes, and you. Our theme music is by me and John Maddox. 
I am Louise Palenker here with Fritz Coleman. Be well and wise, and we will see you along the media path. <laughs>